Welcome to Just Thinking with hosts Dara Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week to week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on, Oma? <laughs> Bro, what's going on? I can't believe it, man. We're here in front of one another live. We got a live kind of studio audience. I guess you'd call this our studio here at GTY. Uh, absolutely. Indeed, we are live. We are live. We are live and in, in, in living color, and no I don't doubt. mean that in an ethnic sense of the Thank word. Thank you very much for that, no doubt. But yes, yeah, so we're, we're, we are uh, streaming live, actually. Yeah, we're absolutely. streaming live from the Grace to You Truth Matters Conference yep. at Grace Community Church in La La Land. Yep. Uh, did, they still, did they still say that? Yeah, no it's doubt. La La Land. So we are in the Family Center here on the campus of Grace Community Church, broadcasting live the Just Thinking Podcast. Uh, a, a really touchy subject that we're going to yeah. be dealing with yeah. in this episode. We, we want to thank, hey, man, the room is filling up. Uh, I, was, I was kind of afraid of that because I don't want to let anybody down. Yeah. But, uh, but man, thanks everybody for coming out. Man. We're excited that you're here. We're excited that you're a part of this particular broadcast. I, I really want to toss it up because as I was kind of polling the room earlier, one of the things that I noticed was that there are a number of you who maybe have heard about the podcast. Some of you are getting news about the podcast. Maybe the first time you heard about it was the announcement tonight about our session uh, and the topic that we're talking about. So I'm excited that you're here, but I want to kind of toss it to Daryl to kind of give him an opportunity to share a little bit about kind of his heart around the podcast, how we got started, uh, a little bit about how, how Dwayne, our, our producer, kind of put us together and what all took place. So, Daryl, why don't you tee us up with that? Yeah, because I'm sure there are a few of you out there right now going like, who are these guys? You right. know, uh, how'd they get on the program? Well, the podcast, let me just start by saying that the podcast was not our idea. I have a blog that I write for. Uh, you can access the blog at justthinking.me. That's just thinking. That's one word, justthinking.me. And I've been writing for that blog for maybe five or six years. So I had somewhat of a presence um, online and on social media. Uh, well, some of my writings caught the attention of a brother uh, who lives in Greenville, South Carolina, by the name of Dwayne Atkins. As a matter of fact, Dwayne is right here on the front row. And uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne does all of our post-production. So if you, you're a regular listener to the Just Thinking podcast, you hear... Uh, the sound effects, any special effects like the Hammond B3 organ and whatnot. That's what uh, Dwayne helps us do. He he takes what we do from a content standpoint, and then uh, in post-production, he gets it ready to put out there uh, so that you can listen to it, uh, and he makes it sound really good. Well, anyway, some of my writing and comments on social media caught the attention of Dwayne, and he hits me up on Facebook one day and say, hey, I know this brother who lives out in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. I think you guys would work really, really well together. Uh, on a podcast. Now, Verge has experience in radio uh, and that space. Writing is more my thing. So when Dwayne first approached us with the idea, I, did, I was not for it. I was not comfortable doing it because I don't necessarily consider myself that uh, all that good of a speaker. You know, I, I tossed it around for a couple months and uh, Virgil and I got on a call, I think, and we said, hey, we'll give it a shot. So December, 7, December of 2017, we did our first episode of the Just Thinking podcast. We call it Just Thinking because it's named after my blog. So the podcast is really an extension of the blog. 
And the mission statement of the blog is that we apply biblical truth to the social, political, theological, and cultural issues in our world uh, today. So uh, we've got somewhat of a reputation to, uh, for doing that in, uh, in, in using this podcast to address some extremely difficult topics that no one else is willing to touch. And we think you will understand why by the time we uh, conclude this episode. Absolutely. So that's, that's sort of the backstory of how the uh, podcast came into existence. Uh, Virgin, anything you want to add? Yeah, I'll, I'll add a couple of things that when uh, Daryl and I kind of connected, uh, I got a chance to kind of do an interview of him and we got to talking. There was an immediate chemistry uh, that we kind of felt with one another, just really easy flow uh, of, of kind of the way we, 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 uh, we interacted and just kind of felt like brothers. And I thought, man, the subject matter that he's addressing, I love his writing style. I'm addressing it in the spaces that I'm in. And so it'd be a wonderful combination. I'm more kind of the outgoing guy who loves to talk, loves to be out there. But in this role in particular, I, actually, I absolutely love because I kind of get to play the background guy. Uh, and I let Daryl, with, with some of the brilliant ideas that he has, kind of take the four. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful kind of blending of, of what we do. And so we've had a great time. I, I wanted you to share as well, uh, Daryl, if you would, just a little bit about how, this, how the opportunity for GTY opened up. Yeah, so that's a really great story. For those of you who don't know, I actually work for Grace to You. My um, role there is Dean of Social Media. So if you happen to follow Grace to You on any of our social media platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, those platforms fall under my area of responsibility, among some other things. Well, uh, how I ended up at Grace to You is, is, is really an absolute miracle. Uh, matter of fact, my wife and I are still blown away by how God worked in our lives. Well, anyway, we were living in Atlanta, and my, the way my wife and I like to tell the story, we were just in Atlanta minding our own business. That's, <laughs> we were just minding our own business. That's how it starts. Uh, Todd Friel, uh, I think Todd Friel somehow got wind of some of the stuff I was writing about on my blog. And I get an email from Todd just out of nowhere. I'd never met him, never spoken with him. He says, hey, um, I'm going to be there. This is like May of 2018. So this is just last year. I get an email from Todd Friel saying, hey, uh, I'm putting together this Q&A panel on social justice. Been reading a lot of your stuff that you've been writing on that. Really love it. Would love for you to be a part of the Q&A panel that we're doing. It's going to be in August. Oh, and by the way, Phil Johnson, the executive director of Grace to You, uh, is going to be on the panel as well, with, but with one caveat. <clears throat> he says that he's not going to do the panel unless you agree to do it. Uh, so I'm like, okay. So uh, I've never spoken with Phil, never had any interaction with Phil whatsoever. I didn't want to uh, see people are going to say, wow, you get opportunities to do stuff. You don't want to do anything. Well, it's kind of like I like I didn't want to do the podcast. I didn't want to do this Q&A panel either, because um, where we lived in Atlanta, where Todd Friel studio is, is like an hour and 15 minute drive uh, from where we live. And if, if any of you have ever been to Atlanta recently, it is a is a lot like L.A. It's smaller than L.A., but it's really sprawl. It's, it's really spread out like L.A. is. So from the time that uh, Todd was going to schedule the Q&A, uh, from the time it would take for us to drive there and back, do the Q&A, everything, it would probably be close to 1 o'clock in the morning before we got back home. So I'm like, nah, I'm not doing it. Uh, then we, we, we talked about it some more and talked it over and said, okay, I'll do it. So August comes around. It's the evening of the uh, Q&A panel. We're going to record it before a live studio audience at Todd Friel Studios, uh, which are north of Atlanta. Well, Todd had arranged, before we did the event itself, Todd had arranged for dinner for everyone to gather 
at a, at a nearby restaurant near studios. Well, there were quite a few of us so that we had to carpool. Well, Phil Johnson just happens to ask us, says, hey, uh, do you and Melissa uh, mind if I ride with you guys? We said, sure, no problem at all. So we're trying to just be good Southern hosts for here, here's the voice of grace to you in the backseat of our car. And we're just, uh, we're following, uh, we're following Todd and one more vehicle to the restaurant because we didn't know where we were going. And uh, so we stop at this traffic light. And in the time it takes for the light to change from red to green, Phil Johnson just out of nowhere says, so, hey, Darrell, why don't you consider come work for us out at Grace to You? <laughs> just like that. My wife and I, we looked at each other like, wait, is he serious? Is he serious? Like, really? This was August of 2018. December 2018, we're putting our house on the market uh, for sale. Uh, eight days after we put our house on the market, we got it on the contract. We don't even have a place to live out here yet. So we're flying back and forth to L.A. We probably made about three round trips out here uh, to L.A. And then in January, we made that one-way trip to L.A. We left all our family and friends back in Atlanta and came out here to L.A. convinced that it was God's will for us to come out here. Uh, so seriously, we were solidly convinced that we were uh, uh, doing God's will. Uh, no dreams, no voices, or nothing like that. We, we were just... I just want to make that clear. Uh, so that's how, we, that's how we ended up out here. And, uh, you know, man, we come from a place where, you know, we're used to hurricanes and tornadoes and lightning storms and things like that. To now we're, we used to, you know, July 4th was our first earthquake. I mean, oh, my gosh, we were like, what's going on? What are we, our house is moving like this. And what, what, what is this? And then the next day you had the aftershocks and, and it's doing it again. And, and then the fires and the, the Santa, we're having to educate ourselves on what the Santa Ana winds are. We don't, we don't know about that. So, so yeah, so, so that's how we got here. And uh, it's just an act of God's providence. He just, God just absolutely interrupted our lives from what we were doing and said, no, nope, I'm going to pick you up from what you're doing and move you all the way That's incredible. to the other side. I was just talking about the podcast. See, he gave oh. you. Oh, my bad. But that's okay. My that's bad. okay. See, Y'all got the story. See, you weren't. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so, man, let's give the people what they want, man. Let's, let's give them what let's they want. Ahead. Man, they came to hear this Well, topic, it may man. be what they want. It may not be what may they want. It may not be what they want. Right, right. Time, time will definitely tell. We'll see. Man, listen, it's a, it's a joy to be here. I'll let you kind of tee things up, man. We've got, we, we're, we're running into the time, so I want to... I want to go ahead and let you start us out with our topic tonight. Yeah, man. So the theme of this uh, year's Truth Matters Conference is the sufficiency of Scripture, yes, right? Sir. So in given that theme, you and I decided that we would make this uh, episode of the podcast, of the Just Thinking Podcast, sort of line up with that overall theme. And as I mentioned uh, a second ago, this is the very first time Virgil and I have ever done an episode in each other's presence. And it's the first time that we've ever done an episode in front of a live audience. But, yeah, we decided that this episode of the podcast should remain in keeping with the general theme of the Truth Matters Conference. And I say general theme because the more specific topic we're going to be discussing tonight is the sufficiency of Scripture in light of black liberation theology. Now, we landed on that particular topic as there are elements of black liberation theology that are intrinsic to the broader worldviews of social justice and the quote-unquote social justice uh, social gospel, rather. And I'm going to copy Vody uh, Bauckham, who, for those who are listening or streaming online right now, I'm using air quotes when I say social gospel. So I just want to make, make that clear. Both the social justice movement and the social gospel continue to be advanced and embraced by many evangelical churches. 
and organizations. Now, regular listeners to the Just Thinking podcast will know from previous episodes that we've done that social justice is a topic, Virgil, that you and I have covered in depth. Okay. Now, in fact, to say that we've covered and dealt with the subject of social justice in depth actually might be an understatement. I say that because, and just to give you who are not familiar with our podcast an idea, just a sample of some of the episodes uh, that we've done and some of the titles of our episodes. We've done episodes, matter of fact, our most recent episode we titled When Forgiveness Isn't Woke Enough, Slavery Reparations. To this day, how long ago did we do slavery reparations? Maybe, maybe, maybe two months, two months, two months ago. ago yeah. uh, to date, the episode we did on slavery reparations is our most downloaded episode. I think we're approaching maybe 13,000 downloads of that one episode. We did a, an episode that we titled A Socialist Savior, um, A Nuanced Gospel, Black Nationalism and White Fatherlessness. We did an episode on whiteness. That's, we, one, that's one of my favorites. That's episodes. one of my favorites, man. Yeah. Well, they're all my favorites, but... Uh, we did an episode on Black Lives Matter and abortion. So those are just a few of the episodes we've done on the Just Thinking Podcast that address to one degree or another the topic of social justice and the social, quote-unquote, gospel. But the subject we're dealing with tonight, the sufficiency of Scripture in black liberation theology, is both different yet similar at the same time to social justice and the social gospel. And there are any number of ways that a a topic like that, a topic like black liberation theology, can be approached. But I'd like to start at the beginning, because what we do, and those of you who are regular listeners uh, to our podcast are used to this, what Virgil and I do is is, is critical for us, and we take very seriously that any topic that we're dealing with, that we take time to define terms. Uh, Because we think, uh, we're convinced that defining terms is critical in establishing the context of the conversation you want to have. So I want to start here at the beginning. So when you talk about something being sufficient, Mm -hmm. right, the question logically follows, sufficient for what exactly? That's good. Okay. Sufficient for what? Sufficient to accomplish or to achieve what specifically? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when discussing the sufficiency of Scripture in black liberation theology, the discussion must start with that question. And as that question relates specifically to the matter of black liberation theology and the sufficiency of Scripture, another question becomes, what is Scripture intended to accomplish so as to be deemed sufficient or, in the case of the topic we're discussing this evening, insufficient? Yeah. Okay. What is Scripture intended to accomplish so as to be deemed sufficient or insufficient? Now, in preparing for this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, I discovered that the word sufficient appears in the NESB, which you regular listeners of the podcast know is the non-Arminian Standard Bible Translation. Of course, of course, of course. I like the elect like, standard version. Understood. The ESV. So, in the, in the in the non-Armenian standard Bible translation, the NESB, the word "sufficient" appears a total of thirteen times. I should have counted in the ESV. It's probably not even in there. Really, okay. So, <laughs> in the non-Armenian standard Bible, the word "sufficient" appears thirteen times. Nine times in the Old Testament, and four times. 
in the New Testament. Now, when we think of something as being sufficient, right, we often think in terms of amount or volume, okay? We normally think of sufficient in terms of amount or volume. In other words, our inclination, right, is to think of sufficiency solely in terms of having enough of something, right? Yeah. For example, if you're on a hike somewhere, right, you want to make sure you have enough water and enough food, okay? But Scripture goes further than that. The Word of God speaks of sufficiency not only in terms of capacity, but ability. Yeah, that's good. Okay? So when we continue to drill down this matter of the sufficiency of Scripture, what we're really talking about, Omaha, fundamentally is the ability of Scripture to inherently accomplish or achieve what God designed and ordained it to do. And just what is it that God has designed and ordained his word to accomplish? Yeah. All right? Well, that's the fundamental question. That is the fundamental question. What has God designed and ordained his word to accomplish? Now, we're going to answer that question later. But before we do, any comments you want to add, Omaha, at this point? Yeah, just to be clear, so that those of you who aren't a part of the podcast know that the, he, he's given me this, this nickname, Omaha, mainly because I'm from the center of the country and, and I live in Omaha. So if you hear change between Virgil and somebody clap from Omaha. All right. What? Shout us out. All right. So, so yeah. Ho, OK. So, yeah, they're trying to give you a moniker Hollywood. Not happy. I'm. I'm, I'm yeah. So that so that, you know, he interchanges those. But. But when it, when it comes to the battle for the, the sufficiency of Scripture, I love the shorthand of, of, the, uh, of the idea of ability. It reminds me of the, the often quoted verse uh, from the Scripture in Isaiah 55, uh, 11. Starting in verse 10, it reads this, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return uh, there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Of course, that's from the elect standard version. Of, of course. The, yeah, Bible. So, in so many circles, though, it, that, that verse gets quoted uh, when we want to feel good about a situation or circumstance, right? We often mm-hmm. quote that verse in times when we're excited or we're hopeful uh, with regard to something upcoming, something that, for which we look forward to. However, as you stated earlier regarding the sufficiency of Scripture, it's also important that we hold that same passage of Scripture when things are difficult, right? Uh, When days look dark and circumstances look bleak. I only make that comment in light of the fact that those holding to liberation theology, and I know we're going to discuss this at greater detail, they'll find it necessary to use a different lens by which to look at the Scripture in order to manipulate it uh, in an effort to to change its true meaning for the purpose of, of, of reaching uh, their, uh, or dealing with an immediate experience. And by doing so, they unknowingly in some circumstances and then knowingly in others, they're exposing, they're exposing the fact that they believe Scripture to be insufficient uh, apart from man-made interference and intervention. Yeah, that's a great point. Matter of fact, when you talked about Isaiah 5510 uh, in light of circumstances, you know, one of my favorite verses is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. That says, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord has made the one as yes, well as the other. Absolutely. Uh, 
You know, but when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, one text that immediately comes to my mind is 2 Timothy chapter 3, mm-hmm. verses 16 and 17, which I shall read from the non-Arminian Standard Bible mm-hmm. translation. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Let me pause right there. All Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. That means all Scripture is profitable. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate. Hold on. In case there are any feminists in the room, man of God speaks in terms of genus. So it it includes male and female alike human beings. Okay. Just want to make that Make that clear. Yeah. So uh, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, Mm -hmm. equipped for every good work. Now, the word adequate in that text is the Greek adjective artios, spelled A-R-T-I-O-S. That that word means perfect, complete, or fitted for. So that word adequate is in the same contextual ballpark as the word sufficient, Mm -hmm. okay? But as I was preparing my notes for this podcast episode on the sufficiency of Scripture and black liberation theology, it was the words of 2 Peter 1.3 that kept reverberating in my mind, particularly in light of the idea of sufficiency and its significance to us as Christians as it relates to God's Word. Hmm. Now, I'm going to read 2 Peter 1.3, as I usually do, from, again, the non-Armenian Standard Bible Translation. I'm going to get mine in. Don't worry. Bro. I'm sure you will. Bro. Yeah. Second Peter 1, 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That was Second Peter 1, 3 in the NESB. Now, there is much for us to treasure in that text. There's so much there, in fact, that we can't possibly delve into its riches as fully as I would like in the limited time we have together this evening. Nevertheless, I want to begin our discussion on the sufficiency of Scripture and black liberation theology with the Apostle Peter's declaration in that text that I just read, that by virtue of God's divine power, right, believers in Jesus Christ have been granted everything Mm -hmm. pertaining to life and godliness. Now, that word everything in 2 Peter 1.3 is the Greek adjective pas, it's P-A-S, That word pos is translated to mean each, every, any, all, the whole, whether individually or collectively, okay? So when we consider what that word everything means in 2 Peter 1.3, we find it to be quite comprehensive in its scope. In other words, in terms of both the practical and spiritual aspects of that text, namely life and godliness, Mm -hmm. Believers possess as a real-time reality right now all that we will ever need in Christ and in his word. Okay? And yet, there are those, and by those, in air quotes, I'm including many who profess to be Christian who would disagree with that understanding of that text. They are the people who subscribe to and advocate a theology of liberation or what is more commonly referred to as liberation theology, okay? Now, to be sure, liberation theology as a worldview, as a philosophy, has multiple layers, 
multiple layers. One of those layers is what is known as black liberation theology. Okay? In the late 1960s, an organization known as the Commission on Theology of the National Committee of Black Churchmen issued a statement in which they said this, quote, For us, black theology is the theology of black liberation. It seeks to plumb the black condition in light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ so that the black community can see the gospel is commensurate with the achievement of black humanity. Black theology is a theology of blackness. It is the affirmation of black humanity that emancipates black people from white racism, thus providing authentic freedom for both white and black people. It affirms the humanity of white people in that it says no to the encroachment of white oppression, unquote. Now, Omaha, with that statement from the National Committee of Black Churchmen as our backdrop, would you mind taking a few moments to, number one, unpack for us and our audience here, what is liberation theology? And then number two, discuss what makes black liberation theology distinct from the broader worldview of liberation theology. Yeah, I mean, I'd be glad to do that. First, simply stated, liberation theology is a basic hermeneutic that uses social, a social political lens by which to view scripture. Uh, this lens forces upon scripture the focus of the plight of the poor. Uh, it also looks at stories in the Old Testament as an ongoing theme of rescue from the downtrodden and the poor rather than a message that points to Christ as redeemer. Uh, through this liberation theological hermeneutic, uh, even Christ is seen as a character uh, rescuing the marginalized and, and his kingdom is viewed as a, as a righting of human wrongs suffered in this life. Uh, while the origins of social justicians like Roman Catholic Charles Coughlin popularized the ideas of social justice in the late 1930s, many of his ideas regarding the poor and the downtrodden were adapted by, uh, by Roman Catholic crusaders in Latin America. Uh, these are people who formed liberation theology. Now, as an aside, man, I found it incredibly interesting uh, that both social justice and liberation theology are heavily influenced by a Roman Catholic mm -hmm. uh, aspect. I thought that was really interesting. While there are many in Latin America fighting for the cause of the oppressed, they would be influenced by people like Father Gustav Gutierrez. He wrote a book in 1971 called A Theology of Liberation. Now, for time's sake, I won't spend time walking through the use of their hermeneutic at any great length. However, I want to point to one text that's often used by those advocating liberation theology to promote the idea of social unrest and political instability and even violence mm -hmm. uh, if necessary. Mm -hmm. yep. Liberation theologians use the words of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, to promote their ideas where Jesus said, uh, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, Jesus, according to liberation theology, pushed not for social stability, uh, but for social unrest. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would be men like James Cone, uh, informed by liberation theology, that liberation theology found in Latin America, and the Marxian-influenced liberation theology in parts of Africa, that caused Cone to pen his works regarding the American version of black liberation theology. Now, I only briefly mention Cone's name to credit him with popularizing 
black liberation mm-hmm. theology here because I know that you're going you're gonna to take a little bit more time and walk through his background and that will be helpful. But just to, for our audience to distinguish the liberation theology of Latin America and parts of Africa were quite a bit different than the black liberation theology that, mm-hmm. that's actually found here in, in America. In his book titled God of the Oppressed, James Cone writes, in, uh, writes this, quote, black liberation theology's answer to the question of hermeneutics can be stated briefly. So here's how he states uh, their hermeneutic. The hermeneutic principle for an exegesis of the scripture is the revelation of God in Christ as liberator of the oppressed from social oppression and to political struggle. So the question is, did you, did you catch that? There's no mention of sin whatsoever. So let me read that again. Quote, black liberation theology's answer to the question of hermeneutics can be stated briefly. And here's the statement. The hermeneutical principle for an exegesis of the scriptures is the revelation of God in Christ as liberator of the oppressed from social oppression to political struggle where the poor recognize that their fight against poverty and injustice is not only consistent with the gospel, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's something you should, you should really think about and know. What Cohn and others like him have embraced is the idea that the word of God is insufficient until they were able to adjust its lens, the, the lens of the gospel to meet their 20th and 21st century needs for liberation from their oppressors. Yeah, so some of our listeners may be familiar with the name James H. Cohn. Uh, Cohn was a theologian. He was an author. And at the time of his death on uh, April 28th of 2018, Cohn was the Bill and Judas Moyers Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Just as an aside, Union Theological Seminary is probably the most liberal seminary mm-hmm. uh, on the planet, not just in, uh, in, in America. It's extremely liberal, so liberal, I don't even know why they refer to themselves as a seminary. Uh, but there are many today who regard James Cohn as the father of black liberation theology. In fact, it was Cohn who, along with a gentleman by the name of Gayrard S. Wilmore, uh, Gayrard is spelled G-A-Y-R-A-U-D, Gayrard S. Wilmore, Cohn and Wilmore authored the book Black Theology, A Documentary History, Volume 1, 1966 through 1979. In that book is written the following passage, which I think sums up black liberation theology rather nicely in terms of the foundational paradigm through which that worldview operates. Listen to this quote from Black Theology, a documentary history. Quote, for nearly 500 years, the illusion that Jesus was white dominated the world only because white Europeans dominated the world. Now, with the emergence of the nationalist movements of the world's colored majority, the historic truth is finally beginning to emerge that Jesus was the non-white leader of a non-white people struggling for national liberation against the rule of a white nation, Rome. Mm. That white Americans continue to insist upon a white Christ in the face of all historical evidence to the contrary, and despite the hundreds of shrines to black Madonnas all over the world, is the crowning demonstration of their white supremacist conviction that all things good and valuable must be white. On the other hand, until black Christians are ready to challenge this lie, they have not freed themselves from their spiritual bondage to the white man, nor established in their own minds their right to first-class citizenship in Christ's 
kingdom on earth. The quote closes with this. We must put down this white Jesus, which the white man gave us in slavery and which has been tearing us to pieces. Wow. Unquote. Wow. So what Wilmore is essentially making a case for is that black Christians need to trade in one ethnic visage of Jesus that is white for another ethnic visage of Jesus that is black. This is essentially what he's arguing. Now, to add to Wilmore's words, listen to this blatantly discriminatory exhortation from James Cone in his book, Black Theology and Black Power. I couldn't believe, I could not believe what you're about to read. I really want our audience to, to, to listen to carefully and think through as you read this next thing you're about to read. Yeah, this is James Cone from his seminal book, uh, Black Theology and Black Power. Quote, reconciliation on white racist terms is impossible for black people since it would crush the dignity of black people. Under these conditions, blacks must treasure their hostility against white people, bringing it fully into consciousness as an irreducible quality of their identity. I want to read that quote again. This is James Cone from Black Theology and Black Power. Quote, Reconciliation on white racist terms is impossible for black people since it would crush the dignity of black people. Under these conditions, blacks must treasure their hostility against white people, bringing it fully into consciousness as an irreducible quality of their identity, unquote. Did you get that, Omaha? I did. Now, you must treasure, Omaha. You must treasure your hostility against white people, Mm -hmm. according to Cone. You must do that. Now, would you like to share with our Truth Matters Conference audience exactly how you plan to do that? (laughs) How you plan to treasure your hostility against the white people in the audience? I have no idea. Maybe maybe we can get together and talk about how we... That would be the next episode. Yeah, that would be the next episode. (laughs) We can do that in another episode. Holy cow. Who, Who wants to do that? Who, I mean, none of what Cone is is advocating makes sense from a theological standpoint on any level. I mean, I, we're going to unpack his, his background here in a bit, but I, I remember that previous statement on our last show, and it, it's crazy to think that anyone would inform others to treasure hostility. Now, as we were preparing uh, for our time here, I remember asking you, you know, how many of uh, James Cone's original works had you read? And I think you'd said all, all of them. them. Yeah, all of them. So I had to do my homework just to kind of kind of catch up and uh, as we were preparing uh, for this particular broadcast. And what I found uh, was that Cone was not that, he, he didn't really have a depth of a command into the scriptures. Uh, I, I, I was expecting to, to, to read this, this robust theologian who really wrestled with the scriptures and that we would have to dissect his words and really kind of do some exegetical work. And the reality was he really didn't have that depth of a command of the scriptures. Uh, his hermeneutic really wasn't that difficult to understand. Daryl, what became most evident to me uh, was how much James Cones was actually a product of his time. I mean, he really was. Uh, what I mean is that in, in, the, in the late 1960s and 1970s, they were a time that were marked by the black power movement. Uh, this was both a political and a social movement which advocated <clears throat> racial pride and self-sufficiency. And while the ideas of a, of a darker-skinned Jesus had been depicted in paintings for centuries, it was in 1962 
uh, as a challenge to the apartheid notion that Jesus was white, that a man by the name of Ronald Harrison, I'm sure no relation to you. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> he was an African national congressional leader. He painted an image of a guy by the name of Albert uh, Lethuli, if I'm pronouncing his name right. He was a former president of the ANC. He painted him hanging on a cross. Now, his painting was named Black Jesus. Now, again, informed by such things as African liberation, Latin American liberation theology, the black power movement, men like Cone were reading their own ideas and experiences into the text of, of a scripture that they actually believed was insufficient. insufficient. So that's what they were doing. So you recall from the quote that I read earlier that Cone says that black Christians must quote, black Christians, quote, have not freed themselves from their spiritual bondage to the white man. Right. So the bondage black people are experiencing, according to Cone, is their bondage to white oppression, right. not the bondage to their sin, right. which is the bondage Christ came to free us from. We know this from Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Mm-hmm. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, not from the white man, no, come but on. from the law of sin and death. Come on, man. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yes. Okay? Now that one sentence from Cone points to what black liberation theology is at its core. It is seeing Jesus as a dark-skinned revolutionary whose primary purpose in coming into the world was to liberate black people from their oppression to white people. Right. So when you hear the term black liberation theology, that is the kind of libera- uh, liberation it is referring to. You mm-hmm. must remember that. Yeah. You must keep that top of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll recall Omaha and perhaps some of our podcast listeners will as well. In August of 2017, I published an article on my blog, at justthinking.me entitled, Is the Gospel Enough for Black Christians? I remember that, yeah. Um, if you want to go to my blog site, justthinking.me, just do a search uh, for that article title. It's titled, Is the Gospel Enough for Black Christians? I wrote that article as social justice as a clarion call was just beginning to be sounded by many black evangelical Christians and black evangelical churches. In fact, that was the primary reason behind my titling the article as I did because it was black Christians and black churches in particular that were most vociferously advocating for and advancing the idea that the church, both individually and collectively as a body, become more involved in an activist sense uh, about what they determined were matters of, quote-unquote, social justice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, since that time, however, those voices have been joined by a veritable host of evangelicals of other ethnic, ecclesiastical, religious, and denominational persuasions and backgrounds as a way to promote their various socio-political agendas. Mm -hmm. So much so that pretty much everything these days is a matter of social justice, simply by virtue of declaring that it is. Mm -hmm. There is no no obligation to prove that it is a matter of social justice. You just say it is, and that makes it so. Right. Okay? Right. But at the time I wrote that article in 2017, the voices of social justice and the social gospel were predominantly, if not exclusively, the voices of black Christians, which again is why I titled the article, Is the Gospel Enough for Black Christians? In other words, the title of the blog article is essentially asking the same question we're addressing here at the Truth Matters Conference. Is scripture sufficient? Yeah. Let me add something right there. And And that's this. One of the things that you and I discussed kind of offline was... And we're going to deal with this issue of black liberation theology, man. And, and, and we're, we're in an audience where there's not a whole lot of melanin, you know, melanin in the room, mm-hmm. you know. 
and, 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 the, and the reality of that, brother, I see you there. I see you. <laughs> brother raised his hand. <laughs> the, the, the issue... Oh, can, I, can I interject? Sure, sure. Can I interrupt your sure. interruption? Sure. Just so we're clear, okay, biblically speaking, we, we all have melanin. Come on. Okay? We all have melanin. It's just different shades. Different shades. You know, one of my favorite verses in, uh, in all of Scripture when we're, and Virgil and I, man, we, we're on the front lines of this whole issue is, and, and highlight this one in your Bibles, is Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Acts 17, verse 26, which reads, And God made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth. That word nation, that noun nation in the Greek is the Greek noun ethnos, from where we get our English word ethnicity. So biblically speaking, and I want to make this clear, biblically speaking, there is no such thing as race. God created ethnicities. He did not create races. So as biblical Christians, let's get our hermeneutic of ethnicity correct. According to Acts 17, 26, God created ethnicities, not races. So we are all just varying, varied shades of the same color. Let's just make that clear. Do your thing, Omaha. Okay. One of the things that we wanted to do in addressing this particular topic was to bring this to an even larger audience. Um, and, and, not, and for it not to simply be something that, that, that the two of us talk about mm. in a corner. And the reason for that is because... What we're witnessing both in the social media platform and just in general is that this isn't staying in a corner. This is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Every conversation, every coffee shop, every, every you know, Panera Bread, any space you go to where people are gathering together to have conversation, they're all whispering about it, but we're not often willing to be bold enough to talk about it in front of one another. And so my thought was, mm-hmm. man, as, as we talked about it and, and had a conversation about it, said, hey, let's bring this particular subject Let's begin walking through it and putting it together. And again, all of that based, is based upon the, the, the hermeneutic that he gave, a, a biblical anthropology about mankind, that we're all one race of people, that we're multiple ethnicities. So all of that ideas, all of those ideas kind of folded into why we did this this way. Indeed, that's a great point. I just want to close out my earlier thought to say, to say that it was out of that preponderance of black voices crying for social justice two years ago that black liberation theology began to sort of resurrect itself and be proffered as an alternative to the kind of traditional or historical white evangelism and uh, evangelicalism in air quotes that people like James Cone denounced so emphatically. But when one understands the ethnocentric Christology upon which black liberation theology is built, it's easy to see why scripture seems insufficient to achieve the kind of socio-ethnic liberation desired by the adherents of black liberation theology. For example, Listen very carefully to these words from James Cone, again, quoting from his book, Black Theology and Black Power. Quote, when black people begin to hear Jesus's message as contemporaneous with their life situation, they will quickly recognize what Jürgen Moltmann, the 20th century German theologian who is most noted for his incorporation of insights from liberation theology and ecology into mainstream Trinitarian theology, calls the quote unquote political hermeneutics of the gospel. Christianity, says Cone, 
then becomes for them a religion of protest against the suffering and affliction of man, unquote. So Cohn's view that the gospel of Jesus Christ must be understood particularly by black Christians through a political hermeneutic is echoed by Dr. Anthony B. Penn, that's P-I-N-N. Dr. Penn is the Agnes Cullen Arnold Professor of Humanities and Professor of Religion at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Penn, in his book, Why, Lord? Suffering and Evil in Black Theology, writes this, quote, The history of black religious thought on suffering, black theodicy, Mm -hmm. makes clear the dominance and unacceptability of redemptive suffering arguments. These arguments are unacceptable because they counteract efforts at liberation by finding something of value in black suffering. In essence, such arguments go against social transformation activities. Redemptive suffering and liberation are diametrically opposed ideas. They suggest ways of being in the world that, in effect, nullify each other. One cannot embrace suffering as redemptive and effectively speak of liberation. The detrimental nature of arguments for redemptive suffering requires constructive work toward a more appropriate response to black suffering, unquote. So when you listen closely to what Dr. Penn is saying, you realize that social justice is not an original idea, but that its origins have roots in black liberation theology. Social justicians today have co-opted phrases such as what Penn refers to as efforts of liberation, social justice, social transformation activities, and constructive work to describe what they call social justice, okay? I've even heard social justicians like Jamar Tisby refer to it as race work, okay? Refer to social justice as race work. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when uh, the article that you had written, uh, Is the Gospel Enough for Black Christians, uh, August 2017. I want to say, as we kind of got hooked up, it was one of the first articles that that, that I had read and it really kind of kind of hit home with me. I began thinking about my own ideas and thoughts around this particular subject. Um, It was it was amazing. Like many of our listeners, uh, I, too, was beginning to hear the voices of social justicians informed by black liberation theologians like Cone, who seem to be saying that either the gospel was insufficient unless it was informed by a social political justice mm-hmm. or that scripture was insufficient unless it was viewed through the lens of social political liberation. I, I think the words of James Cone really highlight what's intended by justicians who practice uh, his theology. In his book, A Black Theology of Liberation, Cone writes this, quote, there can be no theology which does not take seriously the black experience, a life of humiliation and suffering. Have you been humiliated in suffering, brother? Mm, No. (laughs) No. I mean, the the, the presupposition is is racist in in its origin. There could be no theology which does not take seriously the black experience, a life of humiliation and suffering. That means, a, that means that black theology realizes that it is human beings who speak of God. And when those human beings are black, they speak for God only in light of the black experience. 
It is not that black theology denies the importance of God's revelation in Christ, but blacks want to know what Jesus Christ meant when they are, when they are confronted with the brutality of white racism. Now, earlier, Dale, you quoted Cone's title at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Cone was the professor emeritus mm-hmm. of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. And what's shocking is that it would seem that a professor of systematic theology, as a professor of systematic theology, he has never studied harmoniology. He, he's never studied the doctrine of sin. Cone's doctrine of sin seems to be steeped in the idea that sin can only be found in a lack of melanin in one's skin. Mm-hmm. And as a result, black virtue has only been marred throughout human history as a result of the lack of virtue found in whiteness and its impact on society. I mean, that's that's what we're we're hearing over and over again. Right. Yep. People yep. need to repent of their whiteness. Yep. However you do that. Matter of fact, we did an episode on whiteness. So if you want to subscribe to the podcast and listen to that, that's actually the title of the episode. Whiteness. whiteness. Yeah. And uh, we break all this down. Yeah. You'll love it. Add to this the idea that there's now additional virtue in being a victim Mm -hmm. in our current culture. And it's no wonder that to many men like James Cone are past historic figures from whom we can learn a great deal today. Yeah, you know, when you study the writings of black liberation theologians such as James Cone, Anthony Penn, Jeremiah Wright, Aubrey Hendricks Jr., Robert Beckford, among others, what you'll find is that black liberation theology is rooted in a vindictive, separatist and prejudicial ethos that is fundamentally antithetical to the kind of unity that comes as a result of true conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. We see this in Christ's high priestly prayer to his heavenly father in John chapter 17, verse 23. Christ is talking here. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Amen. Those are Jesus' words in John 17, 23. Now, in contrast to believers in Christ being perfected in unity by his Holy Spirit, listen to this discordant language from James Cone, again, quoting from his book, Black Theology and Black Power. Quote, For white people, God's reconciliation in Jesus Christ means that God has made black people a beautiful people. And if they, that is white people, are going to be in relationship with God, they must enter by means of their black brothers. So Cone is uh, positing an ethnic soteriology right here. They're black brothers who are a manifestation of God's presence on earth. So there here's God, uh, sorry, Cone positing an ethnic divinity, okay? Cone continues, the assumption that one can know God without knowing blackness is the basic heresy of the white churches. They want God without blackness, Christ without obedience, and love without death. What they fail to realize is that in America, God's revelation on earth has always been black, red, or some other shocking shade, but never white. Whiteness, as revealed in the history of America, is the expression of what is wrong with man. It is a symbol of man's depravity. God cannot be white, even though white churches have portrayed him as white. When we look at what whiteness has done to the minds of, our, of men in our country, we can see clearly what the New Testament meant when it spoke of the principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cone is alluding to Ephesians 6.12. To speak of Satan and his powers become not just a way of speaking, but a fact of reality. Still quoting Cone here. 
When we can see a people who are being controlled by an ideology of whiteness, then we know what reconciliation must mean. The coming of Christ means a denial of what we thought we were. It means destroying the white devil in us. Wow. Cone closes this quote with this. Reconciliation to God means that white people are prepared to deny themselves, that is to deny their whiteness, and take up their cross, blackness, and follow Christ into the black ghetto. Unquote. Now, after hearing those uplifting words from James Cone, Omaha. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> which, in keeping with the, the, his thesis that black Christians must interpret the gospel through a political hermeneutic, right. I can't help but wonder why he, that is why Cone or any other proponent of black liberation theology would profess to be a Christian at all. Right. I right. just don't get it. I mean, it's rather apparent from his writings that Cone views Orthodox Christianity, or what he undoubtedly would call white evangelicalism, as wholly insufficient and inadequate to bring about the kind of social cultural change he envisioned. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the passage I just read from Black Theology and Black Power, Cohn introduces his readers to an ethno-political Christology, an ethno-political soteriology, an ethno-political anthropology, an ethno-political homardiology, because apparently only white people will, only white people are capable of committing the sin of racism. And, and, only, and only the government is a savior. Right. Right. So they're, they're, they, they have replaced Christ as savior with government as savior. So according to Cohn, only white people are capable of committing racism or what I prefer to call ethnic hatred, which is biblically what that sin is. It's ethnic hatred. There's no such thing as racism because there's no such thing as race. In scripture, there are only one of two attitudes that I can have towards each of you. I either love you or I hate you. All these isms are nonsense. Okay? Come on, man. Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear. Read it for yourself, especially in the book of 1 John. I either love you or I hate you. The only question then is how that love or hate manifests itself. All these isms need to be done away with. So when you understand the hermeneutical filter through which Cone views Scripture, you come to realize why such a, uh, he was such a big fan of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. <laughs> Karl Barth lived from 1886 to 1968. And speaking of Barth, a contemporary of Barth was a German New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf Boltzmann. That's B-U-L-T-M-A-N-N, Rudolf Boltzmann. Boltzmann lived from 1884 to 1976. In his book, An Introduction to Biblical Hermeneutics, W.R. Downing, Downing is director of the Pacific Institute for Religious Studies in Morgan Hill, California. Downing says this about Rudolf Boltzmann, quote, Boltman pioneered what has become known as the quote-unquote new hermeneutic. This included the demythologization of Scripture. The demythologization of Scripture. The new hermeneutic holds that language itself is interpretation. That's insane. The word itself is thus hermeneutical and existential. Those who hold to this new hermeneutic write of a quote, word happening, unquote, or, quote, speech event, unquote, which communicates its own truth in light of the hearer's own experience. That's just biblical insufficiency. Exactly. Yeah. Listen to that again. The new hermeneutic 
communicates its own truth in light of the hearer's own experience. So Downing expands on that idea by quoting the 20th century Baptist theologian and apologist Bernard Ram, R-A-M-M. Ram said this, quote, The word of God is really more a movement than a notion. The word of God is the existential communication of God within the text of Scripture. It is to be dug out by the exegesis and exposition of the text. It is to be formulated in a charigamptic, charigamptic sermon. And it is received as the word of God by the hearer when, in decision, the hearer accepts it by faith. Existential considerations permeate each step of the procedure, unquote. He said a whole lot of nothing (laughs) that meant absolutely nothing. But that's how these guys get their PhDs. (laughs) Good night. By sounding like they know a lot when they don't. Let me, let me put this in kitchen English for you. Mm-hmm. When Ram says that existential considerations permeate each step of the procedure of biblical study and biblical exposition, mm-hmm. what he is really arguing, when he says existential considerations it permeate each step of the procedure in biblical exposition, what he's saying is that by ex- existential considerations, All he's saying, that's just black liberation code for personal experience. That is exactly right. So when you hear the term existential considerations, replace that with personal experience. That's exactly what Ram is saying. So personal experience should permeate each step of the process in biblical interpretation according to Ram. Mm -hmm. And a hermeneutic of personal experience is exactly how unorthodox worldviews such as black liberation theology develop and gain traction within the church. One last comment before I turn it over to you, Omaha, for your thoughts. Sure. Downing goes on to say in his book on biblical hermeneutics, and the quote I'm about to read underscores what I said earlier about Cone's hermeneutics producing a new Christology, a new uh, soteriology, etc. Downing goes on to say that liberation theology, along with what he refers to as feminine exegesis, or what you and I might call evangelical feminism, right, is a byproduct of Rudolf Bultmann's new hermeneutic of interpreting scripture in light of one's own personal experience. Okay, Downing writes this, quote, Liberation theology, first developed in Latin America, approaches the scriptures from the perspective of the politically and socially oppressed. Okay, that's personal experience. It possesses a socialist, Marxist bias in its hermeneutic of Christology. That is, it views Christ as a poor laborer and revolutionary. In its ecclesiology, in that the, the place of the church and society and involved, must be involved in social issues, and eschatologically referring to the kingdom of God in society. So Downing again is saying that liberation theology is rooted in a hermeneutic of suffering and oppression. Okay? Omaha, thoughts on that? You've seen, I mean, we, we, as we were listening to the speakers uh, earlier today, you, you would see, especially with, with uh, Justin Peters' uh, Justin Peters' uh, presentation, how they're taking Scripture and, and allowing it to mean something much less than, the, than, the, than the, its original glory. That's exactly what's happening 
with these with the folks who are who are beholding to black liberation theology. Earlier, uh, you quoted James Cone with regard to the idea of understanding God. Cone said uh, uh, from earlier, the quote was this: "The assumption that one can know God without knowing blackness is the is the basic heresy of white churches." End quote. Now there were two things that came to mind when when I when I initially heard that quote. The first was an idea that I think I first heard coined. Uh, by Dr. Vody Bakum when I heard him use the term ethnic Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. You guys might remember that. It was during an interview that he had with Dr. James White a few years ago where, where, where Dr. Bakum used the term. Uh, he, he described it as the idea of being being black allows one to have special experiential knowledge that others don't have regarding temporal things uh, through which we can understand spiritual ideas at a deeper level. Now, true Conian thought extends this idea beyond spiritual knowledge with the notion that knowing God requires ethnic Gnosticism, uh, the ethnic Gnosticism of blackness in order for God to even be known. The claim is made apart from any systematic theological proof uh, that this position is valid. And all of this, again, I have to keep going back and reminding you, this is from a professor emeritus of systematic theology. He's providing no basis for any of the things that he's positing whatsoever. But it's, but, it's, but, but it's taken hook, line, and sinker as if it's truth on the basis of his quote-unquote black experience. My second thought, and, and it was something that you, is a point that you kind of alluded to earlier, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll make it a little bit more clear here briefly, is this isn't Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not Christianity. Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with the biblical Christianity that you and I hold dear. And the fact that there are, there are, there are evangelicals that, 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 that are beholden to this mm-hmm. absolutely boggles my mind. And it should do the same for you. In fact, the ideas are more akin to Elijah Muhammad, Louis Farrakhan, and the Nation of Islam than they are to anything Orthodox or Christian. You know, Omaha, there's something about the historical, sociocultural, evangelical tradition of black Christians and the quote-unquote black church in America that finds it virtuous to remain tethered to a hermeneutic of suffrage. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is what black liberation theology is. It is a false gospel that is built upon a hermeneutic of historical suffrage, oppression, victimhood, and revenge. Uh, Consequently, many who subscribe to Black liberation theology still perceive the quote-unquote black church exactly as James Cone describes it in his book, Black Theology and Black Power. That is, they view it as a home base for revolution. Absolutely. Uh, That's how Cone described the black church. Now, I want to read in light of that, in light of Cone's view of the black church as home base for revolution. I want to read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. In other words, everything that James Cone pretty much uh, lived by. Mm-hmm. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, and by inference also from your heart. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is being, trend, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, the question for us is, have you put on the new self? That's good. That's good. Have you put on the new self? Yeah. According to John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, not in melanin and ethnicity. All right? I'm sure it reads that way in your Bible as well. John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So when you look at black liberation theology, you have to ask the following question. Where is salvation in black liberation theology? Where is atonement in black liberation theology? Where is propitiation in black liberation theology? Where is substitution? Where is redemption? Where is forgiveness? Where is regeneration in black liberation theology? It's not there. It doesn't exist. Black liberation theology advocates for the ongoing hatred of an entire ethnic group based on an unbiblical hermeneutic of Christ as a divine ethnic avenger. Consequently, a fundamental question I have for those who subscribe to black liberation theology is this. Why Jesus Christ? Right, right. Why Jesus Christ? Seriously, why believe in Jesus at all? Why is Jesus Christ the answer and not Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or Joseph Smith? I mean, it's obvious that in black liberation theology, Scripture is wholly insufficient. Absolutely. So why leverage the God of Scripture as a solution to any of society's ills, whether those ills be related or not to ethnicity? That's the question. It goes back to a question I asked earlier at the top of the episode. What did Christ come into the world to do? What did God design Scripture to accomplish? Right. You listen to a guy like Cohn. And when you peel back the layers of black liberation theology, you have to ask the question, why do you even bother with Jesus? Right. Thoughts, Omaha? No, I, I think that, that those are the primary questions you have to ask. Those are the things that, that, you need to be, that you need to have in mind when you deal with, experience, run into, read about these black social justicians who are, and, and, and I say black, basically social justices come in every shade, right? Yep. Uh, that, that, are, that are advocating the, the positions of black liberation theology. That's what, I, that's what I meant to say clearly. But in presenting this, it would be our hope that believers would be informed as to the origins of black liberation theology and its impact, uh, not only on, on the so-called black communities, but its insidious infiltration of the embrace of biblical insufficiency. Because that's, that's, what, that's what the embrace is. The Bible is not enough. Mm-hmm. The gospel is not mm-hmm. enough. And now they've, le- they've, they've leaned into experience as a primary basis for a, a, a backwards hermeneutic. I, I just think it's important for us to be informed about these things within the Christian community, man. And I'm glad we had the opportunity to do so. Yeah, so as we close up this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, uh, I want to sort of... Um take a little detour here and say really quickly, uh, Omaha and I, we're not naive to the fact that 
uh, especially for those of you who are hearing us for the very first time, uh, that we use language that may be somewhat uncomfortable for you to hear. But this is what we do. Okay? We do this. We do this weekly. Okay? And I say that not to pat ourselves on the back, but really to encourage you that this earth, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your issue too. And I don't care what ethnicity you are. You have to have the courage because we, know, we have the truth. The truth should give you the courage to speak as boldly as we are about these issues. I don't care what ethnicity you are. Uh, Omaha said earlier, if you haven't uh, encountered this issue directly, you will. It's coming to your neighborhood. It's coming to your grocery store. It's coming to your church. It's coming to your school. It's coming. And you need to be prepared for it. Okay? So I understand that uh, some, of, some, of the, some of the discourse we've been using here uh, may be uh, uncomfortable for you, maybe a little uneasy for you to hear. Uh, but this is what we do uh, on the Just Thinking Podcast. We, 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 we frame this issue within the paradigm of the gospel. And we don't shy away uh, from using language um, that's common to the issue at hand. Uh, so I just wanted to say that as an aside. Now, as we close, uh, in consideration of the uh, question, the questions, plural, is Scripture sufficient? Is Christ sufficient? Is the gospel sufficient, especially in light of black liber- liberation theology and what we talked about on that issue? I want to close with a quote from John MacArthur uh, from his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ. Uh, John writes this quote, It must grieve God when people slander him by claiming that the Bible is outdated or isn't sophisticated enough for our educated society. Scripture needs no updating, editing, or refining. Whatever time or culture you live in, it is eternally relevant. It needs no help in that regard. It is pure, sinless, inerrant truth. It is enduring. It is God's revelation for every generation. It was written by the omniscient spirit of God, who is infinitely more sophisticated than anyone who dares stand in judgment on Scripture's relevancy for our society and infinitely wiser than all the best philosophers, analysts, and psychologists who pass like a childhood parade into irrelevancy. Unquote. That's good. Well, brother, it, it's been a, a good day, a good time, a good episode. Uh, we've got a ton of them. Ready to go? You got something you want to Yeah, add? I just want to thank everybody for coming out. We know it's been a long day for you guys. Thank you for coming out to uh, partake of this episode of the Justing It podcast and listen to two guys who you have no idea who we are. Uh, so, but, but thank you all for coming out. We really appreciate I'm it. Omaha, you want to take us out? Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you guys very much. We appreciate it. I, I want to close this out by saying thank you for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Tune in next week for the next edition of the Just, Just Thinking, Thinking Podcast. Podcast.